Uh, we are in Mark 9, starting in verse 33 and going through verse 50. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet than to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die And the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has left its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Scott told me that if I look right at the camera, I'm looking everybody in the eye, so I just want to say good morning to everybody at the same time. Big payoff for one look. Uh, I'm thankful to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, I'm thankful for all these people that have been serving here, too. Pat mentioned um, some thanks last week. I just want to reiterate how thankful we are as elders for all the different ways people have been stepping up to serve um, the church family over these last several weeks, And, and I'm specifically thankful for Pat, too, and the way that he has been such a dear brother to me and a partner in this work. Uh, I am very thankful for him. I'm thankful for Scott and for John, the other elders. I'm thankful for Tim, who's sitting behind the tech table. You guys can't see him, but uh, he has been such a blessing with all the tech stuff and all the guys who are doing music, Will today, and all the other guys, Matt and Evan. Thank you, guys. Thank you for all the ways you're serving our church family in this time. Um, thankful that we can continue to worship not ideally, not what any of us would choose, like Scott said earlier, but together. So um, back in Mark, I, I like being here. I, I like what, I, I love coming face to face with Jesus week after week. From the very beginning of Mark, we're just going to go straight into it. From the very beginning of Mark, uh, Jesus told us that he had come to establish a kingdom. That goes all the way back to Mark 1 verse 15, which says this, the time, Jesus is talking and he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom was at hand. Jesus had come to bring people into that kingdom that he had come to establish. And those people would be brought in 
by his blood, by his life. He was going to pay for them with his blood. But what we've been seeing over the last several weeks, the people that were closest to him, his disciples, people for whom he would give his life, they still didn't get it. They didn't understand. This was from Pat's passage last week, and I just want to read it again with you. This is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. It says this, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. There it is. The disciples, those closest to him, Jesus just tells him, spells out exactly what he's going to do. He announced it before. He's announcing it here in this part in in Mark 9 again, um, why he came to be delivered into the hands of men, to be killed, and then to rise. And why was he going to do that? To pay the debt to God that we all owed because of our sin, to give his life for us. The disciples didn't have spiritual eyes to see that. Instead of heeding Jesus' call to, to self-denial, that's what he had said back in, in chapter 8 when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Instead of heeding that call to self-denial that leads to glory, remember just after that, Jesus took the disciples up onto the mountain. He uh, was transfigured is the word we often use, meaning he pulled back the curtain on his glory for a moment so they could see him. Instead of heeding the call of self-denial that leads to glory, they seek earthly glory. And they think that they get to establish who gets it. And that's what we had just read, what Scott just read for us. That's our passage today. Glory only comes by first following Jesus on the hard road of the cross. Glory only comes by first following Jesus on the hard road of the cross. And Jesus in our passage today teaches them practically ground level, day to day, what denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following him looks like. He gives them some really specific instruction on that. This is what he teaches them. He teaches them to, first, receive the littlest. Second, embrace other servants. Three, cut off your sinfulness. And then last, keep your saltiness. That's going to be our outline for today. Receive the littlest, embrace other servants, Cut off your sinfulness. Keep your saltiness. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, speak through your word to us right now. Lord, I want you to speak to me today. I need a good word from you. And I know that you have it for us. Your word is good. Lord, touch each person where they are right now, where they're sitting, um, where they're standing, whatever they're doing, chasing after kids. Lord, I ask that you'd meet them in power. Renew our strength today through the true and good food of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with the first one, receive the littlest. I know that that is a little bit of awkward language, littlest, but it actually comes from verse 42, if you want to take a look at that. But receive the littlest, this is verses 33 through 37. Jesus knew what they were discussing on the road, but to spark a teaching moment, he asked them what they were talking about. They were discussing, of course, who is the greatest disciple. It's this game of one-upmanship. You can kind of try to place yourself in that conversation um, where 
the disciples are discussing with one another who's going to be the greatest, who's the greatest among them. And they say, well, you know, I did cast out that demon back in Galilee. And the other one might say, well, yeah, but, but I prayed for the girl and she was healed, which is really a silly idea if you get around to it. We all do this, though. We all try to lift ourselves up by putting other people down. When Jesus asked the question, they were filled with shame and they didn't respond. The disciples thought that the pecking order or their ranks could be negotiated amongst themselves. And so Jesus needs to teach them. He, he sits down, gathers his disciples around him. That's the posture of the teacher. And he tells them the path to being first. And that's verse 35. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is one of those Jesus moments. That's, that's the way I think about it. A, a Jesus moment where his beauty, his glory, his perfection, his kingdom is on, is on display. And it comes through an unexpected way. Be last, servant of all. That is against every cell of our bodies. It's against every cell of my body. I don't want to serve. I want to be served. And, if, and I honestly, I don't, I don't want to be last. I, I, I don't want to have to be the servant of all. I want to show that I'm great, that I'm somebody, that I matter. I can't let myself be last. I got to lift myself up. I got to show that I'm first. Jesus takes all that and he flips it on its head. It's radical. What Jesus is saying here is radical. Be last, be servant to all. And then he illustrates what he just said. He takes a child and he pulls the child into his arms. And then he says this, verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let me give you a little background on children at that time. At that time, there was a very high infant mortality rate. Very, very, it was a very sad, very hard thing. We know there's places like that still in the world today. Children did not live, many children died at a young age. The demand at the time for human labor was also very high. So children were often forced into labor at an early age. My son, Abraham, eight years old, um, he's a second grader. Very likely, he would have been in the fields, working the fields with me, even at that early of an age. And so what does that mean? When your kids die young and when they're, they're used for labor as an early, at an early age, life is really hard. It's very difficult to get sentimental about kids. And in fact, all of society at that time viewed them as a very inferior, very low. Not, not like they're viewed necessarily today. So when Jesus takes that child and pulls the child into his arms, when he receives the child to himself, he's first showing them how low they must go. Serving, receiving one as low as this, as insignificant as this. That's how low they have to go. This is, uh, this is an exhortation to reorientation for all of us. It's, it's, a, it's an exhortation to serve others, to serve those who are low. And, and you're going to need, and I'm going to need, some prayerful diagnosis here from the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to bring this before God and ask him to search our hearts. We need to ask questions. God, do, do I seek to serve or do I want everyone just to serve me? Show me, Lord, how that, how I am seeking service from others, from myself. Do you, does the church or other 
other organizations, your MC or whatever you're involved in for Christian community, does that exist to serve you or are you serving them? What about your other relationships? How do you serve your family or your friends? Just a little quick aside as I'm thinking about um, all of us in our in the stay-at-home order and how that can bring anxiety and especially depression that comes through loneliness. I remember a dear brother of mine telling me a, a number of years ago that, that struggled greatly with depression and anxiety, that uh, his tendency in those moments of depression and anxiety was to just cave in on himself and stay in on himself. But one of the great uh, remedies to his depression was to actually get out and to serve. To serve. If you're depressed... Um, if you're despairing today, to, I, I, I want to ask you, I want to invite you to take that step of faith, to reach out to someone, even though as, as, as bleak as things might seem inside your own heart, to reach outside of yourself, to reach out to someone else, and to see how they are, to check in on somebody, to invite someone on a social distancing walk, but to deliver, using here for a child, is the same word as servant, servant and child, It's the same word. So when Jesus tells them to receive children, he's telling them to receive his servant greater than this person. Only a big-hearted embrace to all of God's servants. And the reason that Jesus gives for this, what provides the fuel for us to open our hearts, to open our arms to all the children of God, receiving one of God's children is receiving God himself. Young, old, we're talking about Christians right now. Young, old, black, white, rich, poor, whoever, whatever, wherever. When you receive a follower of Jesus Christ, you receive God. Because, of course, he dwells in them. So what does that mean? How does that apply to our lives? We do not receive a fellow Christian based on position or accomplishments or economic status, or influence, or fame. On the, and on the flip side, we do not reject someone because they annoy us or rub us in the wrong way. Of course, people are going to do that. But in the kingdom of God, the lowest person dines at the king's table. And in fact, he has, she has the place of honor. That fellow Christian is God's child, beloved and precious to him. Like in everything that's transpired, and, and this little embraces and receives them. He shows his disciples as the Son of God. They had just seen his glory. He is the Son of God. And he shows them that he is willing to go low, to embrace the low, to serve them. And he actually, of course, is going to go lower still. He's going to go all the way to the cross For who? For this prideful, self-centered group of disciples and us and me. He does not shame them, though. He does not chastise them or scream at them in anger for the disciples' pride. He humbly, gently draws them in and teaches them. He is the servant of all. He displays that he is the servant of all. And he's calling his disciples and us into service like that. He's elevating that service by identifying with the lowly so closely. And don't miss this. This is what I want you to see. It comes again and again and again through this passage. He receives them the same way that he receives you. 
Embrace your role as a servant loved by Jesus. Be last of all, servant of all. Serve the littlest. This conversation, though, seems to take a turn right here at verse 38. It seems to turn more toward the right way to do ministry. But in reality, it's the same issue, the same issue at work, trying to gain glory for self. And this brings us to the second point, that Jesus is teaching them. Embrace other servants. This is verses 38 through 41. What happened here is the disciples saw someone else casting out demons in Jesus' name. And John relays this story to Jesus and said, don't, don't worry, Jesus, we put a stop to that. His reason for why it was unauthorized, why was it not okay? Look at the end of verse 38. He says, because he, that is the person who was casting out the demons, because he was not following us. Well, in verse 39, Jesus corrects John and tells him not to stop people from doing works in his name. The disciples' view of God's work was too narrow. It's not limited only to them. The fact, is, the, the fact that in Jesus' name it worked shows that this man who performed this deed is in fact a true believer. God ultimately decides when the power comes, right? It's his sovereign control. But this man's authentic faith and obedience to do it in Jesus' name brought about authentic power. This really is a work of God. This is further evidence that the kingdom of God is coming. It's not just isolated to this group, this in-group, this exclusive group of disciples. It's coming to the world. Jesus is welcoming participation in his Satan-destroying mission from everybody, from all, even from unexpected places. This is really, really important. This is important for me. I do this. Um, what, what happens here? This is, this is pointing out something that, that happens in my heart. We get, I can get, and on all of us on some level, can get an us and them mentality when it comes to other brothers and sisters in Christ. We can expend huge amounts of energy, uh, maybe arguing fine points of, of doctrine, or we can borderline worship our uh, denomination or our speakers or our conferences or our writers or the pastors. Um, and those are the people that we exclusively associate with. And then we look at other Christians coming from unexpected places, places that are outside our tribe or outside our camp, and we disdain them. We push away. We say, not a genuine work of God. That's what John's doing here. That's what I do in my heart too. I'm not talking about people who are doing gospel demolishing or destroying work. I'm talking about people who, leaders or pastors, other Christians, I'm talking about people who love the gospel, who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, but have different views from you on non-essential things. Do we just quickly write them off, brush them aside, reject them? Do we, do we tell them to stop because they're not one of us? They're not just like me. Do we say things like, they could, or do we think things like, you can only minister if you're reformed, you believe in a believer's baptism, and you burn a candle to the patron saints of Tim Keller and John Piper every night. No. Jesus corrects his disciples and us to see that he's at work in many different types of people from many different backgrounds who do work in his name. It doesn't have to look the same. It won't. It won't look the same. That's what, this, that's what this example is here for us. The mark of authentic Christian ministry is not tradition or denomination or style, 
but Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified. That's what we're called to rejoice in. Can we, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than reject those unfamiliar to us, rejoice in their successes that bring honor to Christ? That is difficult. We need grace there. But do you know what's even more difficult for me? To embrace others' successes where I have failed. Now, to really wrap wrap our minds around what's happening with John and Jesus, the context is critical. So when John is making this statement, uh, something had just happened. You, You might remember this from last week when Pat was preaching about it. The disciples had just failed to do their own mighty work, right? A man had brought his son to the disciples to get a demon cast out, and they couldn't do it. Jesus shows up, laments everyone's lack of faith, and then he casts out that demon. The disciples experienced failure. And then what do you know? Guess who shows up? This guy, who that nobody really even knows, and he did what they could not do. He succeeded where they failed. And so John, he has to put a stop to it. Friends, I cannot tell you how difficult this is for me personally. Um, my dear wife is an, an incredible gift to me. And I remember early on in our dating experience, I was used to kind of being the alpha dog or exerting my uh, uh, showing how, how powerful I was or strong I was through winning, right? Um, but early on in my dating of, of Darcy, who's now my wife, I began to realize that I wasn't always going to beat her at things. It may seem like a trivial thing or even funny that I, I couldn't beat her, uh, but I assure you at the time it was not very funny to me. I remember an early date where we had decided we were going to go to the basement of the union here at U of I to go bowling. And uh, we went bowling, and I thought... I'm going to show her. I'm going to show her who's, who's the man. And she beat me. She beat me, and she still beats me. <laughs> she beat me then. She beats me now. The Lord, hallelujah, uses her to humble me. I lost that day. But to me, at that moment, it's shameful to say, it, it amounted to failure to me. The date was over. I could not handle it. I couldn't handle her success in the face of my failure. And this is, it's, it's a really trivial thing. In my heart, though, it was a big deal. My self-worth and my, my identity was bound up in that and showing myself to be great. And I really do think that the date ended at that point. I was so frustrated. How, how insanely childish is that? And yet I still do it. I, I wish it stayed in the world of sports and games where I'm trying to show my worth and value through uh, through what I do, um, and then I, I feel bad about the losses that I have because I, and I have to try to prove myself or put others down to raise myself up, but it trickles into everything I do, even ministry. Here's what's true, and Jesus points it out to his disciples. Look at verse 39. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak of me. A mighty work in my name. Who does the work? John? That other guy? It is God. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have has been given to you by God. Or earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the growth. It is God who does the work. What do we have to boast in? Moses understood this. Back in Numbers chapter 11, Joshua came running to Moses saying, everyone in the camp is prophesying. And Moses said, essentially, good. I'm glad. I wish God's spirit was on all of them, and they all would. Moses was not, not intimidated by God's work in other people, even in areas where he might have failed. He knew that God did the work. Or John the Baptist, he understood this. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. He knew who had to rise. He knew who did the, who did the work, and it was for everyone's good. It is not about them. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The scope of doing works that, that have kingdom purpose is so wide. It can be casting out a demon. It can also be giving a fellow Christian a glass of water. There's no distinction here. There's not a hierarchy of trivial and important tasks. It's not just the bigger, mighty works, which definitely have their place, that gain reward. It is the smaller, trivial tasks that, make the, that, that also gain the reward. Both bring reward. What matters in all of this is the devotion of the heart to Jesus, expressed in receiving whoever comes in his name. Not trying to prove yourself, not trying to posture yourself, the little ones who come in his name. Now, throughout this section, Jesus is calling us from a life of half measures and half submission. One foot in this world, one foot in the next. And into a radical renunciation of everything that would hold us back from wholehearted devotion to him. That, start, that started a while ago, back in chapter 8. But through this whole section, he's calling us into something, a radical commitment here. Do you know what's holding us back? Jesus points it out right here. What's holding us back from that commitment? It's your sin. It's my sin. That brings us to the third point, cut off your sinfulness. Jesus demands a renunciation of sin. Back in chapter 8, Jesus said that to follow him, you need to renounce your life Pick up your cross and follow him. We get a little more detail here, and it is gory. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That is a graphic picture. Jesus wants his followers to understand what's at stake for them and for the people they lead if they entertain sin. Sins like the prideful desire for self-glory. That's what makes my heart just so shocked when I think about the way that I can get so jealous when I fail and others succeed. Do you know what the remedy is? Here's the remedy. Rather than drag others into sin, it'd be better to be brutally killed. Rather than sin, cut off that offending part of your body. That is graphic. What is at stake? Hell. Sin drags people to hell. Look at the way Jesus describes hell. He says in verse 43, it's an unquenchable fire. Or verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That that is horrifying and that is chilling if you think about it. Many of us, 
And, and I can go around like this too. Many of us are functional universalists. This is what I mean by that. We don't live in light of the reality of where our sin can drag us to. We can harbor sins that threaten us, threaten to take us to a place where fire is never quenched. We can treat our sins so lightly. And Jesus says, cut it off. That is violent. And that is decisive. And I just want to be totally clear here. That is metaphorical. Just because you cut off your hand or your foot or your eye does not make you stop sinning. Jesus says over and over all throughout the Gospels that the sin, your sin, starts in your heart. It comes from your heart. So what does Jesus mean? Your hand is what you do. Your feet is where you go. Your eyes are what you see. What you do, where you go, what you see, what you look at. This is a re-emphasis of the radical call to discipleship. What you look at and what you do and where you go have heaven and hell implications. You must flee from sin. And not only for your sake. That's what Jesus is saying here. For those around you, lest you drag them with you into sin. This is such a serious call. I, I know you're sitting in your living room right now. I am talking to you, though, about your sin right now. This has heaven and hell hanging in the balance. Let me tell you something. This passage broke my heart. My heart breaks even in this moment thinking about it. I am so sad about my own heart's callousness, callousness and insensitivity to sin. It is so easy for me to harbor sin, to just let it incubate in my own heart rather than getting it out, cutting it off. Even in preparing this message today, this message talking about grabbing for greatness, do you realize how many times I thought about my own glory? How I posture, how I, even in these moments, how I can posture myself to look better in your eyes, to, to try to be funny there, to be clever there, or be cute there, you know? It's insidious, it's, it's pervasive. And I, I just, you know, how Paul screams out, he just says, Who is, who's going to save me from this body of death? I want to be the best pastor for you. I want to do everything right. And there's a part of that that's good because I do love you and I do desire your good and your growth in following Christ. And there's a part of that that I'm motivated by a desire for my own glory. It makes me sick. It's not okay. It's my sin. I am grieved over my own sin. You must ask the Holy Spirit to search your own heart. What do you do? What do you look at? Where do you go physically or mentally that will throw you into hell? That's, what, that's what's so jarring about that, about my own sin. This stuff drags people to hell. What must be cut off by the power of the Spirit? There is hope for you, follower of Jesus Christ. There is hope for you in this. There's hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. Hope to escape the fires of hell power to shake off the old self, grace to be radically committed to the rejection of sin. Here's a promise that I come back to you again and again. It's Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, sin, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a power there to put to death these deeds, to put to death this sin. 
to live. There's a promise there on the other side, to live. There's hope in that truth. There's power in that truth. And it is accessed by faith through prayer. But it's a radical commitment to cutting off every whiff of sin. Jesus' love, I told you that this comes up again and again through this passage. And it might not seem like it right here, but I want you to see this. His love is blazingly bright right here. I hope you can see it and sense it. If anyone would cause you, he's talking about you. If anyone would cause you to sin, he wants that person to put a, put a stone around their neck and get thrown into the sea. Because, and, and he wants you to do whatever it takes to cut off sin because he is gathering you. He's receiving you in his arms. He wants you to do whatever it takes to make it to him. And in your wholehearted commitment to him, this renunciation of sin, this following him, of picking up your cross and following him, he wants to set you apart from the world to point others toward true life and true glory. And that's the fourth point. Keep your saltiness. Verses 49 and 50. I'll read it again. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. From peace, I mean, I'm sorry, from strife, remember at the beginning how this whole passage began? They're fighting with each other, all the way to peace here in verse 50. That's the path Jesus leads them on. The path of following Jesus is hard. That's what he's walking them through. He's telling them how hard it is, but the result is peace, true peace in multiple ways. He's talking about peace amongst themselves, but that peace obviously becomes even greater through the cross. True peace. Serve the littlest, embrace other servants, cut off your sinfulness. And then this final word to us about keeping our saltiness. Most salt in that day came from the Dead Sea. And at the time, they would use it for three main purposes. They would use it for spices for their food, uh, as a preservative. That's the first one. Second one is preservative for meats. And then the third one, is part of the sacrifices in the temple. And that's, that third one is what's in view here. Salt accompanied the sacrifices in the Old Testament. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the sacrifice is on the altar. What's the sacrifice? It's you. You're the sacrifice. Your life given over to God. Not a dead sacrifice, but borrowing Paul's language from Romans 12. You are a living sacrifice, your life wholly dedicated to him. It must be salted, salt for the sacrifice for God. How? Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. You will be be made fit for sacrifice, salty with fire. What are the fires? The fires in view here are the fires of suffering the fires of affliction. You are made salty. You're made to stand out in a bland world, a living sacrifice to God through the fires of affliction, through suffering. Do you know what that means? Your aches and pains and sorrows and longings, whether it's something you've lost, someone you've lost, or COVID-19 right now, quarantine, an All those sorrows and a million, million other sorrows are not wasted. They are used to make you 
salty, a fit sacrifice, something that stands out in this world. If you are a follower of Christ, hardship and suffering is meant to make you salty in this sense, to make you the aroma of life to a world that is dying. If you're a follower of Christ, your suffering makes you a worthy disciple. Your saltiness is life for the world. It's how the world will know that there is a Savior. That is a glory worth living for. What sets a man or a woman apart in this world is not rank, not power, not success, not prestige, not money, not who you are, not where you came from, not your background. It's not what you do for God or for anyone else. You are set apart because you are beloved, chosen child of God who serves the littlest, who embraces other servants, who cuts off your sinfulness, and who keeps your saltiness through the fires of suffering. It's how the world, this world that we're in, I'm talking about right now, it's how the world that is, that's filled with so much sorrow and anxiety, it's how they will know that life comes in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be salty. Help us to endure these fires for your great glory. Lord, we want to seek true greatness. Help us to serve. Lord, we want to be um, humble servants that embrace other servants. And Lord, we do not, we do not want to entertain or harbor sin in our own hearts. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, help us to cut it off, to be salty, to be unlike this world, and instead to be like you, the servant who came to serve us by giving his life for us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.